The way my father puts it, when you take the elevator to the top, always send it back down for someone else, right? That's what anchors the mission. I'm proud to say that season three of the Super Givers podcast kicks off with the amazing Lou Raja. Lou is a speaker, coach, and co-founder of the nonprofit Educongo, an organization dedicated to bringing education to the children of the Congo. I hope you'll listen in this season as my guests and I begin a path of exploration on the concept of revolutionary leadership. It's what Supergivers is becoming all about, and I'm setting out this season to inspire, educate, and envision just what exactly humans are capable of as leaders. This is the Supergivers Podcast. Let's pretend that nobody listening has heard of you before. Right. And so what's the most important thing you want people to know about you off the bat? Well, right from the get-go, I would say duality. Um, My life is a life of duality, and I think many of us experience that one way or the other. And the way it showed up in my existence has been through my back and forth between the United States of America, where I reside now with my family and kids, and my roots, the Democratic Republic of Congo, where I spent the first 17 years of my life. And so both lessons that I've gotten from Congo and the United States have shaped me in who I am today. So I, I live a dual existence. So my, mind, my mindset, my mantra, my philosophy, is all around living at the intersection of success and significance. So Lou Raja is really here for one reason and one reason only. Number one, to live my fullest expression, and number two, to help others do the same. So that's that's pretty much my essence. That's what I'm about. Yeah, beautiful. And you you jump right to this point that I hope we get into, which is, I wrote down this quote that you have on your website, Africa is my roots. America is my wings. And I'm so curious to learn about what your experience is like as a, as a Congolese man living in the United States in 2019, how that informs your mission and your clarity. Well, uh, Jesse, it goes way back. Uh, my father came to the United States from the Congo with the help of Presbyterian missionaries. This is 1967. So you can imagine this young man in the Congo and goes from Luebo, central Congo, to the College of Worcester in Ohio. (laughs) Uh, I mean, yeah, right? Go figure. Perfect. Uh, Why not? And so he goes to the College of Worcester in uh, 67. My mom, the smarter of the two, (laughs) she (laughs) gets a scholarship in 68 also from the Congo, to Vassar College in New York. Now, how crazy is this? Two people who don't know each other, who live about 200 miles away in the Congo, find themselves in the United States in two completely different states, 
you got Ohio and you have New York. So my mom came with a group of Congolese people that included one of my dad's cousins. So my dad's cousins gets on the Greyhound bus, goes to Worcester, Ohio, and brags about this foxy lady back in New York, my mom. <laughs> and my dad decides to go visit them, and that's how they met. So America is a very special place for me because it comes at the genesis of my mom and dad meeting for the first time and both leaving the Congo to come all the way out here for education, for opportunity. And so they connected here, went back to the Congo in 1970, got married, had my two oldest sisters, Esther and Sengu. And then they came back to the U.S. to pursue their advanced degrees. And now they find themselves in Boston. My dad is at UMass. My mom is at Boston State College. My older brother's born, and then I'm born, Jesse. So by birth, my mm. brother and I are the two Americans in the family of Congolese. Mm. And less than a year after I'm born, we all moved back to the Congo, where I grew up until I was 17. Wow. So you were born, interesting, you were born in one of the most, like, the hub of American white colonialism. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> and then. Before you were really conscious of that, you moved back to what you describe as your roots. So growing up in the Congo was magical. Uh, I ate a lot of mangoes. <laughs> uh. That uh, I have a strong affinity for mangoes. Um, the people, uh, my, all of my values, uh, love for family, respect, community, solidarity, these are some of the things that were taught to us growing up, and uh, that's what shaped my existence. But I also know that my parents had spent time in the U.S., and I knew that at some point in my life, I would come to America. So there was always that duality happening simultaneously. And I, the reason I say Africa gave me my roots is because that's my anchor. That's who I am. But then America opened doors in terms of possibilities, in terms of opportunities. That's why I use the metaphor of wings. So Africa gave me my roots and America gave me my wings. It's just my back and forth between the two places. Well, it sounds like you have a lot of gratitude for both. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, that's, that is uh, key because I didn't ask to be born in the United States, okay? I, I was born in the US by luck, because when you look at what the American passport has allowed for me, uh, has opened so many doors that my own siblings didn't have an opportunity to, right? So that's, uh, that's something that I don't take for granted. This is something that, you know, to whom much is given, much is expected. So I, I, my gratitude is also based into action. How do I give back? How do I open doors for others? How do I create opportunities for others? That's what uh, America represents for me. But then when you look at Africa and Congo, I mean, where do I begin? That's, mm. that's my essence. That's my ancestors, my traditions, my stories, my mangoes. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's who I am. So both places... Uh, play a really, really important role. So, You provide some really important data on your website 
um, that we can get to. But I'm also guessing that in that 16 years you had living there, there was just an experience of the reality there that I'm sure sparked some of what is now Congo. Well, absolutely. Um, the Congo is also a tough place. Um, it's a hard place. We have um, the average income is less than $2 a day. Um, you have uh, life expectancy dancing anywhere between 49 years to 55 years of age. Um, we have a lot of political instability. We've had wars. We still have wars. We've had dictatorship. Um, so going all the way back to colonialism, there's been a lot of challenges that this beautiful region of the world um, and its amazing resilient people have faced. And so one thing you and I understand and know that is that there's an organic brilliance no matter where you are on this planet, right? No country, no region of this earth has a monopoly on brilliance or talent. But we also know that opportunity is not universal. And there are people everywhere who are the Einsteins that we will never know, who are the Mother Teresas that we will never know, the Gandhis, the Nelson Mandelas that we will never know, because they just don't have an opportunity to showcase that gift, that organic brilliance that is born in every human being. So seeing that pain, seeing that suffering, in my own country, in the Congo, is really the impetus for my passion and my mission and my work to really democratize opportunity. That's really what it is. It's how do you democratize opportunity? Because we don't have to work on brilliance because everyone already has it. We don't have to work on, on teaching folks how to be. They're already, they're already there. They just don't have the opportunity. So how do you leverage any resource, any privilege, any opportunity that you have to make the same for others? So we were lucky. My father came to America. My mom came to America. I was born here. This is, this, these are just blessings, right? So now how do we leverage that to open a school? How do we leverage that to open a clinic? How do we leverage that to provide entrepreneurship for young folks? How do we leverage that to make sure that people don't have to come all the way to the U.S. just for a chance at an opportunity in life? So that's really uh, at the core of what Congo and our work through education back home uh, was really all about. So in 2002, you opened the Discovery School. Congo was about creating medical support, education support, and what else? Well, you know, yeah. education is at the heart of human progress. Yeah. Uh, no matter where you look on this planet, you will not find progress if it's not um, uh, in proximity with educational opportunities. And so because I am where I am because of education, and my father's where he is because of education, my mom and my siblings, it's a no-brainer. That's where we started. We were looking for a vehicle that will have the biggest domino effect, right? Because there are so many challenges. Where do you begin in one lifetime to tackle all of them, right? Jesse, I mean, you're looking at um, environmental degradation, political instability, economical 
uh, uh, challenges that folks face over there. You're looking at human rights violations. You look at uh, 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 um, women rights, social justice, you name it. So you say to yourself, okay, this is too much. Like, how do you tackle all of this? And education was the best uh, domino effect or ripple effect, if you will, vehicle that we found because it has worked in our own lives. And so building the school was a no-brainer. Uh, and we started in 2002. We had 198 boys and girls. And uh, now we're over 2,000 students from kindergarten to high school. And we've been going at it for, what, uh, 17 years and counting. And, but you know, <laughs> you would appreciate this and your audience would appreciate this. The need is always greater than our efforts. No matter where you are, whatever you're tackling, it could be cancer, it could be hunger, it could be homelessness. I don't care what issue you want to tackle, you will quickly find how daunting it really is. And to put it in perspective, now you have over 2,000 students, right? And you get all excited, you're pumped about it, and you want to do more. And then you look outside, and there are 8 million kids waiting for a chance. 8 million human beings, school age, that have no access to education in a country of about 72 million people, right? So that is just, I mean, it is heartbreaking. And so you want to do as much as you can with your limited resources, but you also know how vast the challenge really is. So you're trying to maximize everything you can with um, the few that you are privileged to work with. So as a leader, how do you, how do you modulate or assimilate your heartbreak with your inspiration? Right. And it's, it's a dance. Oh my God. Great question. It's, it's really a dance. When you look at it from the perspective of what's, what hasn't been done or what's left to do, it can get pretty depressing. <laughs> uh, it could get super demoralizing and those moments, you know, they, they hit hard. But then when you turn around and you look at it from a perspective of where you began and where you are and the progress that you have made, and you look at it from the perspective of those who have taken advantages of your resources and are now flourishing, wow. I mean, it just, it fills your heart. It fills your cup. It gives you more energy. It gives you more oomph uh, to go for it. So I... I spend, I would say, 80% of my time focusing on progress rather than what's, what hasn't been done and what's left to do. That way, I stay in, in, in the spirit of uh, gratitude. I stay in a spirit of um, passion, energy, work, and, and, and collaboration so that we can build on what we've already done versus... Um, Get, uh, get demoralized by what's left to do. Yeah, I know. Even as you mentioned those numbers, I felt my heart sink a little bit. And then, and then I thought about your mom and dad and the decisions, and the the decisions they made and the opportunities they took um, coming here and, and I'm sure in many others, producing you mm -hmm. 
And I, I think at least one of your siblings is involved, right? In yeah, Congo. Yeah, my brother, and yeah. Your brother's involved, right? And looking at the exponential effect that their decision had by giving you opportunity. So it helped, it, it sort of switches. I, I notice myself like relax and feel really hopeful when I say, well, one or two, pers- two people made these decisions and now Lou is able to create 2000X impact. <laughs> right. So it, it's a little bit of a mindset, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, when I, I have a t-shirt <laughs> that I, I, I wear once in a while just to get my mind right that says, I am my ancestors' wildest dream, right? Because when you look back to where you come from and where you are, you, 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 you feel so grateful and you feel so excited even though there's still so much to go, even though we're not where we want to be. But so, so it's, it's the contrast between the rearview mirror and the windshield, right? When you look at the rearview mirror, it's like, oh my God, wow, we've come a long way. When you look at the windshield, it's like, wow, we have a, a huge task ahead of us, a huge opportunity ahead of us. And so, yes, I am incredibly appreciative of the journey and uh, what we're able to do now. And uh, I think collaboration has been the greatest amplifier uh, to our work. Because in Africa, we say, if you want to go fast, you go alone. But if you want to go far, you go with others. And so the idea is, how do we not operate in, 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 a, in, a, in a silo or in a vacuum. We want to involve as many people as possible so we can amplify the effort, right? Because, you know, many hands <laughs> make light work, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you get as many people as quickly as you can uh, to join, to be passionate about it, to be just as excited, to be just as committed so that uh, we can reach more people faster? That's the, you know, that's, a, that's the amplifier. And so how... How do people in your scope amplify what you're doing? Well, we and started. Can, I guess, and I guess, sorry, how how can they in in Portland, anywhere where they're connected? Like, what does contribution look like for you? Absolutely. Um, number one, we are never fans of imported solutions for local problems, right? So it has to start in the Congo, right where we are. We have to be self-reliant. We have to first depend on ourselves because the highest form of human dignity is people's ability to provide for themselves. And so, as, as you know, people support what they help create, right? So you have to involve your local community as quickly and as early as possible if you have a shot at sustainability. And so when we started way back in 2002, we had a lot of community forums to get buy-in from the people on the ground, to get buy-in from local businesses on the ground, to get buy-in from parents who were questioning the importance of education and who to send because of limited resources, right? So all of those things, were at play. And so that's where we first began. 
And we've built the school in a way that it's self-reliant and not dependent on people's generosities and, 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 and volunteering hours and donations, right? So we wanted to make sure that whether we get a dime or a million dollars from donors, the school will be operational and the dreams of these young folks would not be uh, uh, crushed if there was a dip or recession or um, um, things that didn't go our way. So that's, that's the first step. And we've done that quite well. And that's why Congo, a US-based nonprofit here in Portland, Oregon, is more of an icing on a cake rather than the key operational uh, umbrella for the school. And that's how it was set up. Beautiful. We'll come back at the end and get some action right. items for people. But what, what I think would be such a gift to people listening, because there's so many people, especially my listeners, who are either involved with a cause or you know, trying to create that activation for a cause. Yep. So I, lo- I love what you're saying. You're sort of giving a template to say, you know, on one level, we have to have buy-in from community to be self-sustaining in a way. Yes. What do you see having lived in your time in the U.S. Um, about Americans and maybe some leverage or opportunity that, that, could, that they may not immediately identify? Yes. Um... Oh, I mean, how much time do you have? Uh-huh. But let me, let, me, let, me, let me take a crack at it. Please. Um, well, there's always um, the link between I and we, me and us, right? All of that. I feel like the U.S. and our Western culture here is very much centered around the individual. And it's all about, you know, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. It's about meritocracy. It's about I, 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 you know, iPhone, iMac, you know, I everything. This is the culture of I. And I feel we miss out so much on the culture of we and the culture of us, the culture of uh, collectivism, solidarity, knowing the name of your neighbor and, and interdependence. This is really an opportunity that I feel we have not yet fully tapped into here in the U.S. because we've placed so much emphasis on the individual and achievement and success and going to the top of the ladder and, and all that good stuff. By the way, there is nothing wrong with it. But if you leave it alone, it is something wrong. The idea is not that we should not uh, uh, give the individual all of their opportunities and rights and focus. That's not the point. I'm just saying it's limited if you don't tap into the collective. There is a word in, uh, uh, in Africa that we use called Ubuntu. Ubuntu, U-B-U-N-T-U, Ubuntu. Ubuntu is a Zulu word from South Africa that speaks to the essence of being human. It says, my humanity is bound up in yours, for we can only be humans together. I am because we are. I am because we are. So in other words, there is an unbreakable 
umbilical cord that ties all of us as human beings. Therefore, no one wins and no one loses in isolation. So for me to win, Jesse, you have to win. And for you to win, I have to win. The idea is truly what interdependence is all about. And that's an opportunity that I feel uh, we have not fully tapped into um, in, in our Western culture here because it's a lot of us versus them, the other, and all of the differences that we waste so much energy and angst and strife around the color of someone's skin, uh, their sexual orientation, their political views, their uh, income brackets. I mean, we let these differences override our common humanity. And so that to me is a missed opportunity that all of us can take advantage of should we decide to. I'm thinking about leadership and the leadership that I'm hearing from you is obviously like in large part innate to what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to force it, but I also feel like you probably have some wisdom about like how leadership needs to evolve. This is a theme of my show and my work. And so if you have any perspective on that, I'd love to know with everything you're seeing in your life experience, where would you love to see leadership go in the spirit of, of what you're, what you're promoting? Well, the number one uh, challenge that we have globally, I don't care where you are on this planet, is unrealized potential. That's all it is. That's all it is. Unrealized potential. In other words, the gap between where we are and where we could be. And for some, it's the size of the Grand Canyon. For others, it's smaller. But reality is all of us are in gap management. It could be someone's um, uh, struggle just for the next meal. It could be someone's um, uh, uh, striving towards financial independence. It could be someone fighting for the right to have uh, health care. You name it. There's always a gap between where we are and where we want to be. So since that's a universal problem, everyone can relate to it one way or another. Now, of all the tools that we have in our toolbox to deal with gap management, leadership has been, to me, the best tool, the best vehicle to close that gap. And so I go really deep into understanding all of the complexities, all of the opportunities that leadership really is and what, re- uh, what leadership really brings to not only the individual, but also the collective. So to me, there are six central pillars Uh, to leadership that I've basically not only worked on in my own life, uh, studied, uh, practiced, and taught. And these are the six areas. Number one is self-leadership. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Jesse, this is the one that is most overlooked and people want to jump over, and yet it's the most critical. Yeah. You cannot teach what you don't know. And you cannot lead where you won't go. It's as as simple as that, right? People 
people want to avoid the mirror. They love windows. <laughs> people love windows so they can look at others and they can point fingers. They can talk about who's supposed to do what. But a mirror, a mirror shows exactly what's going on within. And self-leadership to me is a foundation of a leader. And then you can graduate to leading others. Leading others, it's all about the purpose of a leader. And then we can graduate to leading change. <laughs> leading change, not change management. I'm talking about leading change. Mm. That to me is the gift of a leader. See, I look at America before Dr. King and I look at America after Dr. King as an example. So when you look at the before and after, is really where you will locate the value of a leader. So a leader brings something that improves the conditions. Um, and, and, and so that's why leading change, to me, is the gift of a leader. And then the fourth point is leading through crisis. Oh, my goodness. Crisis. Mm. This is the test of a leader. This is the test of a leader. How do we know what we're made of? How do we turn adversity into advantage? How do we make the problem the opportunity? This is really where uh, we get our money's worth, right? This is because it's easy to lead when there's sunshine, <laughs> but it's much more critical to lead when there's rain, right? So how do we go through that test? So leading through crisis is really the test of a leader. And then uh, the fifth one, is leading for tomorrow, right? This is the idea of every leader's goal is to make himself, herself irrelevant by helping others doing what they are doing, right? The idea is succession planning. The idea is mentorship. The idea is getting people to do what you do in the event that you got either hit by a bus or you won the lottery, right? How do you help others do what you do? And then finally, leading together. That is the strength of a leader. And that um, is, is all about Ubuntu. It's all about the collective. So self-leadership, foundation of a leader, leading others, purpose of a leader, leading change, gift of a leader, leading through crisis, test of a leader, leading for tomorrow, legacy of a leader, and then finally leading together, which is the strength of a leader. So that's, that to me is everything in the kitchen sink when it comes to leadership. And everyone can use it because everyone has a gap. <laughs> everyone has a gap. And so we're all trying to close it one way or the other. Yeah. And, you know, I, my guess is from my experience that there are a lot of people, especially in the West, who have a hard time buying in on, on number one. Mm. That, yeah. that, that the power of, I always say like our, our maturity, our development, fill in the blank, right? Our consciousness creates this potential for where we can lead others into. Like you said, I think you said it much more accessibly. Um, we cannot teach what we haven't learned. We cannot lead where we haven't gone, right? Yep. I think exactly. That's exactly. So if somebody's like skeptical about or, or uncomfortable how do we get them to just slightly turn towards the mirror? Right. Um, well, to me, is let's, let's tap into 
their desires, right? Their wants, their vision, what they're looking to create, accomplish uh, on this earth. You cannot give from an empty cup. I think that's pretty self-evident. You just, I don't care what you want. I don't care if you tilt the cup. I don't care if you like uh, uh, have a fancy cup. It just doesn't matter. If there's nothing in it, there's nothing to give. And then the flip side of it, when we're on the airplane, they tell us to wear our own oxygen mask before we can help anyone else. Because we are useless to the world unless or until we filled our cup one way or the other, right? And so that is, uh, uh, there's no way around that. Now you can skip it when most people do, and then they find themselves ineffective. They find themselves uh, shortchanged. They find themselves with less followers. They find themselves in a lot of crisis because again, you can skip the step one if you like, but the outcome and the consequence will be self-evident before too long. Because the idea is, it's hard for me to follow you, Jesse. It's hard for me to buy in if I don't see it performed in yourself. Gandhi said, you must be the change you want to see in the world, right? So whatever you're projecting, you have to model it. It's that simple. And yes. you just have yeah. to model it. But let, me, but let me play devil's advocate for a second. So I, I totally agree. And this is, you know, you and I have a very similar ethos on this. What I've seen is that when somebody skips one, they, they don't even, they will misattribute the limitations of their results to the other because they're still in that window mm -hmm. mindset rather than the mirror mindset. Yeah. So what is the mechanism if it's not that, right? If it's not self-evident and you, and you might sit there and be like, you know, wring your hands, like, look at this, it's so obvious. Mm -hmm. Where have you seen, maybe, maybe there's an example where somebody has a sort of an enlightenment moment of saying, oh, this is about my work. Right. Well, I think, and I, I understand most like, people- It could be like parenting as well, right? Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. When you look at it from psychology perspective, right? We operate from either an internal locus of control or an external locus of control. Now- we, you know, when, when we look at our design as human beings, one would easily think or assume that we are wired for externality, right? We are wired for externality. So, of course, people pay attention to outside and inside because, again, look at our five senses. You cannot look at your eyes because you're looking at others. <laughs> you cannot smell because I'm cooking bacon over here, so it's external, right? So you can smell the bacon that I'm cooking. <laughs> when someone touches you, it's external. When you hear the sound of someone else's voice, it's external. So human beings are wired for externality. We are wired for what's happening in the world. That's why we read the news. That's why we go to concerts. That's why we look at what our neighbors are doing and all of that stuff. We are wired for externality. So I get it. I get why most people want to skip the first step about themselves, because that's very natural and easy for us to operate from an external locus of control. But, but, and that's a big but, you, are, you and I also know, Jesse, that all of the answers are within. You know that. Uh, all of the answers are within. 
So if you do not operate from an internal locus of control, then all of a sudden you are a prisoner of external circumstances. Now the traffic has to be perfect. Now the weather has to be perfect. Now the person that you want in a White House has to be perfect. Now your parents have to be perfect. Now your boss has to be perfect. For you to be happy, for you to be content, there are all these variables that are external that you're depending on for your own happiness, joy, sense of self, sense of fulfillment. And that's BS. That's complete BS. You would never win when you are putting your eggs in the external basket because all of the answers are within. That's why before you can even try to lead others, look within because that's where all the answers come. So when you look at the oak tree, the oak tree is this beautiful tree, but it was all in that tiny little acorn, right? The big, massive oak tree that we're looking at was once in the acorn. So everything we manifest externally has to come from within. So the first work has to be internal. And I would even say if I were to give people a ratio, because obviously we have a little bit of both, uh, if I were to give people a ratio, a healthy ratio for me would be 70-30. If you can operate 70% internally and 30% externally, to me that's a pretty good balance in terms of leadership. Because at the end of the day, um, there are external factors that we cannot ignore. There is a lot of power with the environment. There's a lot of power of you know, the pressure that we get from outside. But I think if we're not resilient and inward, we'll have a tougher time. So I would, I would rather people spend 70% of their time inside and 30% outside. I love it. I love it. And if you're willing, I'd, I also would love to take this a little further. So help correct me if I'm wrong. Part of what I'm learning about you is that when you guide yourself as a leader, going right to the heart of the internal process, right? And that's, that's what's going to shape your potential as a leader. But your opportunity in life was largely shaped externally. Yeah. So I'm thinking now in the climate of today, right? Like what if you, what if your parents had not been allowed to come here? Like if they, if they'd tried today because of our current policy, they yep. may not be allowed in the country, right? Absolutely. Or they might be sent back. Yeah. What if you, as you are, had incarnated in this, in this realm exactly as you are and who you are, and you'd started in the Congo, and your parents hadn't had the external impact of opportunity from education and other, right? Yeah. Where, would, that, you, yeah, where would you go? How would you, how would you harness that 30%? Absolutely. Um, and and well, I want to say specifically, as a target, as a person who wears at least to target memberships, right? Right. Non-US born person of color. Right. right. Yeah. And, prob- and maybe others. Yeah, absolutely. I, I get it. And uh, Arthur Ashe, the famous tennis player, activist, um, humanitarian, once said, start where you are, use what you have, and do what you can. That's it. That's all life requires of us. Start where you are, use what you have, and do what you can. Now, that is not tied to any geographic location, any time period, 
any opportunity or lack thereof, that's a fundamental way of living. And so the idea is to bloom and blossom wherever you are planted, wherever you are planted. So my father's life before coming to America was not different. It wasn't. He just didn't have the opportunities. So when, take, take a perfect seed, right? A perfect seed. When you have fertile ground, it blossoms. It grows into a plant, into a tree, into anything. But then when you put it in a desert, it withers and dies. Now, it's, it's, it's not because it's a bad seed. It just so happened that you are in a place where you, you, you don't have the opportunity to flourish. So the fact that my parents came to America in the late 60s, they did not become uh, 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 better seeds. They just happened to be in a place where there was fertile ground. So th there's not really a change here. If I lived in a Congo, if I did not come here, I would do my best where I am. So that's a non-negotiable, that's a non-compromising uh, uh, scenario, right? It's not dependent on where you are. That's as, long the, as, as long as you embody that mindset, right? Exactly. Of course. As long okay. as you embody that mindset. Which other external factors can influence that mindset, right? But what I love, and this relates to uh, another um, amazing interview I did with somebody who was multiple target groups, mm -hmm. and she really emphasized the, uh, the concept of having a victor story rather than a victim story. Absolutely. While also, while also recognizing the system and its inequities. Yeah. Absolutely. You, I mean, you, the circumstances do not define who you are. See, my, 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 uh, my tribe, my ethnic group, we are called the Bakusus. We're from the northeastern part of the Congo, the Bakusu people. Uh, we are not our, who we are is internal. Jesse, let me, let me paint a picture for you. We come from an oral tradition, right? We come from an oral tradition. This is centuries, generation after generation. We're not a materialistic people. We, 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 we did not come from, from a place where, you know, we had all these materials and gifts and, 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 and skyscrapers and cars and TVs and all that stuff. So where do you think the premium was, right? So our value was all internal. Yeah. It was based on who we are, right? Yeah. It wasn't based on whether we went to Harvard or whether we have a, a business or whether we owned a couple ranches. It wasn't, it wasn't based on any of that. It was based on internal factor, character, morals, values, helpfulness, solidarity. So a lot of our virtues are main, mainly internal because we didn't have the external um, uh, uh, scenarios that Westerners have, right? So a lot of my history, a lot of my ancestors' history is all based on the individual and the collective essence from within, not from without. So that's why it's easy for me to focus on what really matters, and that's internal. That's where that comes from. Yeah, yeah. It's wonderful that you were brought up 
in that type of environment, right? Which not everybody is. Yeah. I'm lucky. I, I trust me. I'm very lucky. In fact, I do a, a whole um, uh, training on gratitude because I know that I did not create this. It was gifted to me. And so I, I go through literally the seven levels of gratitude. That's how, that's how much I appreciate this. Yeah. Um, and uh, yes, I'm very grateful for it. It shows, it shows. Yeah. Thank you for going there. Um, let's come back to Educongo as a entity, a nonprofit. Yep. Um, you mentioned that it is self-sustaining, but I'm sure there are ways that people can contribute. So I'd, I'd love to give you a chance to just help people get connected if they're inspired by this. How can they best support you today? Absolutely. Connect with us um, at educongo.org. That's E-D-U-C-O-N-G-O, educongo.org. And, and, we'll put, uh, and we'll put a link in the production notes, yeah. Fantastic, fantastic. And, and just reach out and find out more. Uh, because what I've found, um, not all help is created equal. <laughs> um, um, I, there's an asymmetric relationship between people from, let's say, the West and people uh, in, in Africa and as poorly, poorly referred to as the third world countries. Uh, what happens is sometimes people just want to give without really getting the picture. We want you to know us first. We want to be equal partners. We want to talk about mutually beneficial things, not just a donation, not just a check, or not just a, a trip to volunteer and do some service project and feel good for a couple of weeks and come back. I, I would rather us really engage in meaningful win-win, win-win partnerships so that we can, uh, we can uplift each other versus helping, quote-unquote, the less fortunate. Beautiful. Again, that Victor partnership exactly. mindset. So exactly. they, can go, they can go to the website. There. And there's all the information there. They can yeah. connect with me directly. Yeah. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll dance. We'll dance. Yeah. And if you're listening, Lou is a professional speaker, facilitator, uh, leadership coach out here in Portland. But you, I'm sure you travel and do events Absolutely. in other cities. Yeah, absolutely. So look him up and hire him and bring him to spread the word and to support you because I can tell even in the in the few minutes we've had a chance to talk that um, I've already had two ideas of where I would love to bring you into my world. <laughs> so if you're inspired, you know, call him up and hire him. Because what I love about just tying in that last piece, what I love about what you're doing from the gratitude of your culture and upbringing is that you are it's seemingly living that inter interdependence and spreading that with the work you're doing. And so that's one way that we can support Victor stories and um, create opportunity is to empower people to recenter themselves within any cultural context. And I see you doing that in spades. So um, I'm in admiration and gratitude of you for that. Jesse, I really appreciate it. And likewise, um, in the work that you're doing and you're providing a platform for people like myself and your previous amazing guests and the ones you're going to have in the future to, to, to expand, to have the ripple of what we do, touch more people, and then we can grow in the process as well. So I am incredibly grateful that you've made it part of your ethos, part of your mission, 
uh, part of your purpose to provide this platform for me. And so I appreciate that. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. And, and um, I appreciate you coming on. Are there, are there any final thoughts that you'd like to have and before we sign off? I would say take the elevator to the top and send it back down, man. That's, that's, that's the essence of it, right? My job or anyone's job is to, number one, live their fullest and truest expression and then turn right around and help others do the exact same thing. That's it. That's it. To check out more from Lou Raja, go to louraja.com. To support his work with Educongo, please go to educongo.org. I'm going to leave today with an invitation. Find one area in your life where your elevator is at or near the top. What does sending it back down for someone else look like for you? If you have an idea, what is the next step towards action? If you listened to episode 32 with Rukaya Adams, you may have heard that I committed to my own values challenge at the end, and then I'd report back on this episode about my progress. Okay, here goes. As I continue to learn more about how the U.S. government operates and how powerful and often compromising the corporate lobby input is to our system, I realized I needed to start taking action to back political candidates who are allegedly non-lobby funded. So far, I've donated my own money to two candidates' campaigns and will donate more as the road to the 2020 election progresses. This has been the Super Givers Podcast, and I'm your host and producer, Jesse Johnson. You can help me out with one of three simple actions. You can write a five-star review on iTunes, you can tell a friend about the show, or you can listen to another episode on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or TuneIn. You can learn more about me and my equine-based leadership work at supergivers.com. Thanks for listening.